Thanks very much. It's always a great privilege to bring God's word. Um, we're going to talk about a favorite psalm, but first of all, I'd like you to think about a dream that you've had for ages. Don't know what it's about. Perhaps it's about that job that you've always wanted and it's just bit out there, bit out there and a bit further away. Perhaps it's a relationship you want to have. Perhaps it's a house you want to buy. Perhaps it's a career move that is just, oh, it's there, but a bit out of reach. So you go on dreaming and you go on thinking about it. Would it ever come true? And there's the hope and the longing that as the years go by, it just builds up and the longing grows and oh, it's taking a long time, but I really do want it to happen. What if it turned into a 70-year wait? What if it did? Could you stand it? What happened if your older family members died disappointed when it didn't happen? And then it comes true. Then it comes true. What would be your reaction? Having waited as long as that, how would you feel about it? That's what this psalm that we're going to talk about tonight is about. That sort of situation. So this is Psalm 126. We're going to split it up into two pieces. It falls very naturally into two parts. So we'll read half of it first, and then we'll look at that, and then we'll come back to the other half of it. So Psalm 126, and we'll read the first three verses. When the Lord brought back his exiles to Jerusalem, it was like a dream. We were filled with laughter, and we sang for joy. And the other nations said, what amazing things the Lord has done for them. Yes, the Lord has done amazing things for us. What joy. We're filled with joy. The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. So where did this all come from? What's it about? Well, God's people had ended up with a devastating experience of exile and captivity. It was the most appalling thing that ever happened to them, except the captivity they'd experienced in Egypt. But this was awful because after all that they had experienced of God, after he'd led them out of Egypt, after he brought them into the promised land, after there'd been a series of kings, a series of prophets, so many instances of God being at work in their lives as a nation and as individuals, and so many experiences, including one that was only about 100 years before, when God has stepped in in a miraculous way and saved Jerusalem and saved the temple and saved the people of God. And then this time he didn't. It was devastating. They were dragged out of their own land in three separate groups. And when they were in Babylon, there was no temple. There was no worship of God, the real God. They were exiles. And God said, I told you this would happen. You would persist in worshipping other gods. So I've put you in a land where they only worship other gods. You would persist in a life of ill-treating the poor, of doing everything that I told you not to do, 
and you persisted and you persisted, and it went on for hundreds of years. And I did tell you that if you went on, it would result in exile. And now it has. And there were those who said, oh, it, it won't last very long. Just a couple of years and you'll be home. And Jeremiah wrote them a letter that said, it'll be 70 years. Settle down. You're going to be there a long time. So that's what happened. And 70 years' wait began. And there were those who knew the land, had been there most of their lives, and they longed to go back. And they dreamt of it. And it didn't happen. And they died in Babylon. And children who'd heard the story gradually built the dream. Perhaps it's us that will go back. And young people and young adults who were there, perhaps, perhaps, and they dreamt and dreamt of going back. And the years went by, and the years went by, and then they went home. Then they walked back across the desert. Then they were able to return as God had promised they would. And this is what this psalm is about. When the Lord brought again the captivity of Zion, and brought his exiles back to Jerusalem, we were like those who dreamt. It was like a dream. Was it really true? Was it real? Did they pinch one another while they were going across the desert to go back to Jerusalem, back to their own land? Is that what it was like for them? We were filled with laughter. We sang for joy. Now, Isaiah had prophesied that that would happen. He wrote in chapter 35... The ransomed of the Lord will return. They'll enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. Jeremiah 2. The Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hands of those stronger than they. They will come and shout with joy on the heights of Zion. I'll turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. We've all seen things on the telly, haven't we, of those being able to return to their own land from exile or for some other reason. They come back, they kiss the ground. I wonder if that's what happened. So many had never seen the place. Some had been born in Babylon. That was the only world they knew. And now this overwhelming experience of anticipation had found its fruit, and everything was celebration. And they said, it's the Lord who's done it. It was the Lord who'd done it. Only he could have made it happen. He'd said, if you seek me, you'll find me. If you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you and I will bring you back. That was his promise. The Lord has done it. He arranged for the exile in the first place because that's what he said he would do. And he brought them back because he said he'd do that as well. And in the most amazing way, at the very moment when it was the right time for them to go into exile, there was an emperor named Nebuchadnezzar whose fixed plan for every area that he conquered was to take the best, and most of the others as well, back to his own empire to enrich it. And that's how Daniel and his three friends got there. 
and how God was able to reach Nebuchadnezzar through their witness, through them being there. But just at the right time, when God needed to take them back to their land, when the dream was going to be fulfilled, there was an emperor named Cyrus, and he was known to repatriate anybody who wanted to go home. So he said to them, you want to go home, guys? Want to go home? That's our dream. Okay, off you go. And by the way, here's some money to help you settle back in and help you build the temple. And here's all the things that were looted out of your temple. You can take them back with you. That's God. That's God's timing. And he even called Cyrus his shepherd, his anointed, whose right hand I take hold of. And people like Daniel got the maths going, realized 70 years were up, and they prayed, God, you said you'd do it. Defend your reputation and get them home. And he did. And when they went into exile, the nations knew about it. They thought it was great. They thought their gods were more powerful. They'd won, hadn't they? These guys were all now in exile. They'd been taken from their land. There was nothing about their god that was interesting. Their gods had won. So they knew all about the exile. But it says here in this psalm that they knew what amazing things the Lord had done for the nations as well. And they knew about that. In fact, spread across the Middle East at that time, there were folklore stories about a people who'd been yanked out of captivity in Egypt and the whole, Babylon, uh, the whole Egyptian army had been drowned in the Red Sea. That sort of tale does the rounds. They knew about a guy named Sennacherib who turned up with his whole Assyrian army and besieged the city of Jerusalem and was about to take it and had said loud and clear how his God was going to win and Hezekiah and his God were useless. And when he got up the next morning, there were thousands of Assyrian soldiers dead outside. And he slunk off home. That sort of story does the rounds. And now here was another one. How could it be that a nation that had been taken into captivity was allowed to go home and to rebuild? The Lord has done great things for them. And the people themselves knew it as well. So is that true? It's not an easy truth, is it, in today's world? But when Daniel was talking to Nebuchadnezzar, the word that God gave him was, the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to whoever he wishes. Do you believe that? Is it true? Is he in charge? Sometimes it doesn't seem like that when we watch the telly. And yet, you could ask Pharaoh, or Sennacherib, or Nebuchadnezzar, or Belshazzar, who saw a hand writing on the wall that told him his kingdom was numbered, or Herod in Acts chapter 12. And they all thought they could defy God and take him on and abuse his people and win. But it didn't last forever. All the dictators, all those who have opposed God down through the years have one thing in common. They're all gone. 
the empires are all gone. And even in our lifetime, we can remember empires that have toppled and dictators and those who oppose God who were defeated and deposed. And most of us can remember that the Berlin Wall came down. Is he in charge? Habakkuk was given a vision by God and told that though it delays, it will happen and the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And in the New Testament, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever and he'll make his enemies his footstool. And the ancient practice was that when you conquered someone, you painted his face on your footstool. Think of all the faces that must be on Jesus' footstool. They're all gone. And that's where their faces are. So we don't see everything under his feet yet, but we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, who died, who rose, who ascended to God's right hand, who prays for us, who guarantees, therefore, that his kingdom rule will happen. God kept his promises in the Old Testament. He'll keep them in the New as well. So let's have a look at the second part of this psalm. From verses 4 to 6. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying their sheaves with them. That's a very different picture, isn't it? Very different picture. After that amazing restoration from captivity... There was need to walk in the daily reality of that restoration. They'd returned to a devastated land. The temple needed to be rebuilt. The wall around Jerusalem needed to be rebuilt. And the whole agrarian cycle needed to take place. A Peruvian novelist named Ciro Alegría wrote a book called Los Perros Hambrientos, The Hungry Dogs. And they made it into a film. They used local people apart from a couple of professional actors. And it was the story of a severe drought. If you think of the drought that's currently going on in Australia that we've seen on the telly, and think plus, plus, plus. It was a severe drought. And it went on and on. And there was one man on his own farm and they were just subsistence farms. And he took the last seeds of corn that he had, and instead of having them for breakfast, he put them in a concrete urn and sealed it up. That was the last seed he had. And the final part of the film shows the rain pouring down in torrents as the drought broke, and he goes to his concrete urn and he picks out the seed that he'd saved. Now what does he do with it? Is he going to sow it or eat it? If he wants a harvest, he's got to sow it. 
and it's very painful. What about his kids? What's he going to do? How much of that seed is he going to sow? Well, there's not very much of it, so unless you sow it all, there's not going to be enough to eat, to harvest, and to have enough seed to replant the following year. So he saves it all and takes it out to sow it in his field. But it's that picture of him picking up the only seed he has and the tears in his eyes and he takes it out to sow. And that's the kind of commitment that is there in this psalm. It's about taking everything and sowing everything in order that there may be a harvest. Because if you don't sow everything, then there'll never be the same kind of harvest. And seed sowing is very risky. Sometimes they come up, sometimes they don't. Just on a far lighter note, um, I enjoy sowing sweet pea seeds and hopefully getting sweet pea plants and sweet pea flowers. For the last two years, they've been a real disappointment. And this last year, just gone, I sowed I don't know how many seeds, very few plants, even fewer flowers, and they're all over and then dried up on the stalk. It's very risky sowing seed. They might come up, then again, they might not. They might last, they might not. The weather might be adverse, the bugs might eat the plants. There's loads of possibilities. And in one translation of this psalm, it talks about those who go out weeping, sowing precious seed. That's what it was like. Because when they went back to the land, that was all they had. They had a small amount of everything if they were going to make it happen. It was also something that they'd be going to do as a community. Now, we think of sowing and we think of a big tractor or a big harvester or something that just goes down the field um, spraying stuff in all directions. In a lot of rural communities, for example, in South America, you will see that they do everything together. It's all a community effort. They all sow Mr. So-and-so's field, they all plough Mr. So-and-so's field, and it's harvest time, wonderful. Everybody goes and helps with the harvest, and they have a great party. It's a very community-orientated thing, and that's what it is here. It's plural. Those who sow with tears or reap with joy, those who go out reaping, weeping, carrying seeds to sow. It's a community thing, but it's all about stepping out and trusting God. It's true in our own personal lives. We celebrate God's promises, we trust him, but he says to be and to do all that he tells us to be and to do as he empowers us by his spirit. And there's that about daily discipleship which can be very costly. It's got to be walked out in everyday situations. It's got to be that constant renewing as if water was coming to the desert. It's got to be in everyday situations and circumstances where things are hard, where things are difficult, 
when it's painful as the seeds of the fruit of the Spirit grow in our lives. There are all sorts of situations where you think, I really find that hard, Lord. And discipleship isn't the easiest thing on the planet. It's risky and it's costly. But that is what God is saying to us. So it all. That's what discipleship is about, the all-in nature of just giving everything to follow Jesus. It's also true about the sowing that we can do about the word of God and the time in prayer and the gathering together. They're all important, but they are all in activities. They're not for, oh, well, just I'll dabble my fingers, thank you very much. They're costly things. It's going out weeping with precious seed. It's also about mission. And sowing seed, if you like, seed of the gospel, is not only about comedy nights. It's about taking time and trouble and moments of being with people, of sharing our faith, of sharing testimony about what God's done, sharing the good news about Jesus. It's all of those things, but it's tough. When it's someone in the family that you're desperate to become a Christian and the years go by and the years go by, and it's tough. Or it's somebody at work who always treats you very badly. And however much you've tried to talk about your faith, you get something rude back. It's tough. It's sowing with weeping, if you like. It's a costly activity. But it's something that God says to us, this is what, this is what it's about. And if you go sowing and weeping in this costly fashion, you will come back rejoicing because there will be harvest. It's been true for us as a church family. There are those here tonight who prayed for this church to stay open at a time when there was a redundancy order over it. Perhaps that seems odd to you, seeing the size of the congregation tonight. But there was a redundancy order. And there were those who prayed and prayed and sowed precious seed in that way. And this is the result. And they got stuck in and they gave. There were those who prayed for the spirit to be at work in the church in this country. Again, there'll be some of you who probably can't even remember the 60s and the 50s and the 60s when the church in this country was in a dire state and it was hard and it was difficult to stick to God and his word and his gospel. But those who prayed and prayed that the spirit would move and the situation would change, and in some ways it has. There's more to go. There's more to go. But there has been movement in the church that wasn't there 50 years ago. And those who prayed for the spirit to move more powerfully in this church and we've seen the spirit move, but more, more, Lord. And all these things are about the constant sowing, the constant sowing, even if it's costly. We talk about our current vision, the three Ps that we're talking about, about positioning and partnering and planting. It's about sowing in tears because it's tough to position ourselves before God in that all-in fashion that gives everything, that goes out even with the last seed you've got and sows it 
because harvest is what you're looking for. And how we might position ourselves, how we might partner with others, how we might plant new experiences of mission. What's it all about? Well, it's about sowing seed. It's, been go it's about going out weeping, bearing precious seed in order that we might come back rejoicing, bringing our sheaves with us, bringing back the harvest. Because that's what will happen in God's time, in God's way. And it will look forward to that day when God brings the final harvest. And Jesus comes back. And we will see the harvest, perhaps that we never knew was there. Perhaps when we get to heaven, we'll meet somebody who... It never occurred to us that they had come to faith in Jesus because they never said to you that they did. But if you asked them, they would tell you it was the time that you spoke to them about faith in Jesus. And that's what happened. Sometimes it happens, even in this life, that in 20 years' time, you'll bump into somebody who came to faith because you taught them in a Sunday school class, in a kids' church class in this church or in a youth group. So many different ways. But it's all about sowing everything. Picking up all that we have and sowing everything. Because that's what God requires of us in order that we have the joy of seeing the harvest. One last picture. Jesus told a parable a parable about a sower who went out to sow. And he obviously sowed in a very prolific way. Not like the usual method you might think of, put a hole in, put a seed in, put a hole in, put a seed in. Not that kind of sowing, but the picking of the seed out and scattering it. And it lands, some here, some there, with varying results. But there will always be good soil for good fruit. And that's God's promise, that sowing and harvesting go together. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest will never cease. That was said after the flood. It's also true of the mission that God gives to us as we put everything into his hands. Let's stand. Just as we're quiet and as we pray, why don't you ask the Lord what he's saying to you about something you need to be sowing? Something in which you need to recognize that he's in charge. Something in your life that he wants to put his hand on and say, I want everything. Not just a little not just a part, but all of my heart. Just ask him that in the quietness. What is he saying to you? Lord Jesus, thank you that you came and you lived and you died and you rose again and you ascended to the right hand of your Father, and you pray for us 
Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for the guarantee that your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that you will help us to trust you, that you will help us to commit everything into your hands, that we may sow the precious seed you've given to us in order that we might see you bring the harvest because it's only you that can do that. Thank you. Thanks, Jill. Let's stay in that place of quiet, of prayer. The band will play quietly, but as always, an opportunity for us to uh, respond, to ask the Lord what he's saying, what it is that we're leaving with. Let's just be quiet. You might find it helpful to close eyes if that keeps out distractions. You may find it helpful to put a hand on your heart, hands open, whatever, whatever feels comfortable. God, we say again, though, that this, in so many ways, is not really about us. It's all about you and what it is that you're giving and what you're saying and what you're asking us to respond to and what you're doing in us. And we're just saying yes to that. We're saying yes to the things that we already have a, a, a hunch about that you're saying and doing. We say yes to what you want to do. For some of us, God, that might be a reluctant yes. For others, uh, it's an emphatic one. Are we just pause and I'm just going to leave some silence. We're just going to ask the Holy Spirit to underline what he might already have said. So we say, come Holy Spirit. Thank you that you do this. Thank you that this is your work. Lord, keep speaking, Lord. This is not a time to be talking too much to the Lord, just being attentive to what he might drop into your heart. Thank you, Lord, that whatever you say, whatever you do is always good because it comes from the, a heart of pure love. Thank you, Lord. Where what you're hearing might feel a bit challenging, if it's from the Lord, it's still from a loving heart. Thank you, Lord. 
So my strong sense is, and there'll be a whole variety of things, and, and uh, what we do is create space for people to be prayed for. That's one of the, the best ways to respond. It's one of the best ways to affirm that yes to God that you're giving is just to step forward in this safe place and allow somebody to pray with you and for you. My strong sense is that there's a whole bunch of people in the room who would identify with waiting for a hope that is as, as yet unfulfilled, uh, even in that place of exile, awaiting a return but not sure when it's going to happen. So that you could identify with that longing, with that waiting, and it's been going on for some time and it's unfulfilled and it's hard. Waiting, nobody finds waiting easy. Uh, and I believe there's a real uh, call tonight uh, to, to, um, to acknowledge that but to stand on God's promises, to stand on the reality that God is still with us in the waiting. There's a beautiful song about that, actually, as it comes to me. God is in the waiting. He's in the waiting. And uh, there's grace from heaven to wait well. And that's always true, but I believe it's particularly true in in this gathering as we gather. So if that's you, if you're in a waiting place and it's an uncomfortable place and it's hard... Uh, there's grace to wait well. Why don't you, you, as a group, make your way forward? Just come forward and receive prayer for that. Just come. There's grace to wait well. Who would not want that? If you're, you identify with that waiting, that longing, and, um, and that's not very easy. For some of you in that place of waiting, actually, you've stopped sowing. Uh, Jill's word was partly about sowing, continuing to sow in tears. That's really hard. In other words, to continue to do the things that you need to do, even though... Life is really tough. And some of you have stopped waiting, uh, stopped sowing rather, stopped doing that thing because it's just been hard and you're you're sort of fed up or disappointed or whatever. And there's no condemnation about that. It's not a condemning thing at all, but you recognize you just stopped. You're not even going through the motions. You just kind of ground to a halt in the waiting. If that's you, please come, please, please come. There's real encouragement from God for you tonight. I'd love you to come forward, just receive some prayer. Uh, so already some folks are, are, are up here. If you're a part of the Trinity family and um, you're kind of a little bit used to doing this in life groups or here or whatever, would you come, men to men, women to women, put a hand on a shoulder and the word that's been responded to here is grace for waiting. So you know what you're praying into. Do some listening, do some praying. If you sense God adding to that, then add to it. Otherwise, just uh, give some folks space and bless what God is saying. You're praying grace in the waiting. That's what you're praying for these folks at the moment. Grace in the waiting. We're not going to rush this, by the way, friends. Please don't you know, feel a need to rush away. You just stay connected with, with the Lord. You can do that where you are. But We're just going to keep listening to the Spirit. So, so while that's happening, just don't switch off. Just keep inviting the Lord to touch your heart. Keep inviting the Lord to touch your heart. Keep inviting the Lord to speak to you. There's real mystery around waiting. Like Jill was saying, it's actually some of, some of the most fertile and rich times are in the waiting. That's the biblical record. It's very uncomfortable. God does some of his best stuff in times of waiting. So take heart. Take heart. Take courage. Take heart. There's grace in the waiting. God is in the waiting. Be grateful you'd have a few more folks to come and pray, please. <laughs> 